life. Life has a way of bringing extraordinary moments to our doorstep without warning. It has a clever way of turning us upside down, both emotionally and mentally, sometimes even physically. Events or people can come from seemingly nowhere and shock your sense of reality and, and notions of normal. Moments so surreal, so unbelievable, so unfathomable. They, they rock your core, they leave you speechless, and sometimes these very moments can alter or, or force for you to change the trajectory of your life. For us old folk in the room, September 11, 2001 was one of those moments, one of those days. It was a day that captivated the world. It, it made Americans of every creed and color across these yet to be United States to stop in place and witness tragedy, dev devastation, and death. Or maybe, maybe it was March 13th, 2020, the day the world literally stood still. The novel coronavirus that just come upon us. Life as we knew it then would never and has never been the same since. And what was once a pandemic has now been called by some an endemic. Nevertheless, these are the kinds of moments where your mind can recall perfectly what you were doing, the clothes you were wearing, where you were located, who you were with when these kinds of events took place. In an instant, in a moment's notice, life was not what you woke up to on those days. It had been altered for better or for worse. However, the same could be said about glorious moments in life. For every tragedy that you've witnessed, you can put yourself right back to the place where you felt something good and glorious even if it was only for a second. You see what's happening. You're aware of what's happening, but, but you cannot explain what's happening. Your mind can't quite grasp the proper semantics that could help you make sense of what's occurring in front of you. But deep down, you know, every part of your body and personhood can feel the moment happening. The birth of a child the wedding of your first daughter or son. Maybe it's your own wedding or graduation day. These are just a few times in life where the moment is so big that you can't find yourself with words. You're speechless, but you're present at the same time. Well, that's the very place that we find Peter, James, and John when we come to Luke chapter 9 this morning. When these brothers woke up that morning, they had no idea that by the time they would fall asleep again, that their, their orientation towards life would be dramatically altered forever. The scene begins here in verse 28, saying that now about eight days after these sayings, he, being Jesus, 
took with him Peter, John, and James, and they went up on a mountain to pray. Now, I could close the book right there, and that's all you would need to hear. Jesus, in the big three, went up to a mountain to pray. Jesus, God in the flesh, going somewhere isolated and secluded to pray. If you think about it, it is quite the conundrum. God going to himself on behalf of himself to pray. What a picture. What a picture. I mean, that is what prayer is after all. After all, We, the people, going to God, petitioning the Lord on behalf of ourselves, maybe for our families, our friends, maybe for our city, our neighbors. Or at least that's what comes to mind when you contemplate the idea of praying. Or when you talk about prayer, that's the kind of language you use. But the question that verse 28 raises to our attention this morning is, when you're done theorizing and and conversing about prayer, do you actually go and pray? Let me try and ask it better. Do you have mountains in your life for those moments when you're down in the valley? Do you know where to go when there's nowhere else for you to go in life? And friends, verse 28 of chapter 9 is teaching you and I that when life has handed you something impossible, when, when news has come to you that is unbearable, when situations come that are too overwhelming, you better know. You better know where to bring it to the feet of God. I know I'm right about it. I know I'm right about it. See, Peter, James, and John, along with Jesus, have had an interesting week or so. See, last Saturday, Jesus had just dropped some heavy news onto the disciples. Note in the first half of verse 28, Luke, the writer, uses the phrase, these sayings. And Brother Luke is helping us to see why Jesus decided to take the big three on this theological field trip up to Mount Tabor. Mm. See, I know, I know you are all astute Bible readers. So, so you already know what had happened earlier in chapter 9. Oh, yeah. He had just broken, Jesus had just broken the news that he had come down to earth to suffer, to be killed. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus goes ahead and puts the cherry on top and he says, well, I've got to tell you, friends, if, if, if you follow me, you too will suffer and lose your life. Hmm, what news? Can you imagine? For more than a week, the disciples, and these three in particular, were carrying these words like a weighted vest. It's what they thought about before they went to bed. It's it's, it's the words that Jesus said to them that echoes in their minds when they wake up during the day. It's what they thought about as they walked around Caesarea Philippi. For eight days, the coming reality of suffering and death was upon them. 
Now you know, you know how folk do when, when they hear something they don't want to hear. See, half of the disciples were probably mad and frustrated. No, he did it. Bring us all the way here. And then now decides to tell us what our fate is. He, Jesus, you could have told me that in the beginning. I would have made my mind up right then and there. Or, or, or some of them were probably thinking, well, if, if you're God then, and, and, and you die, then what happens to us? You, you just come and you leave us and that's it? Can't you just snap your fingers and all the bad people and all the bad things will go away? Then you got the other half shaking in their boots, frantic, nervous, afraid, pacing back and forth, shaking, asking Jesus a million questions. Are you sure, Lord? Are you sure? What, what are we going to do? This, is, this has got to be a joke. This is a test. That's what Jesus does. He tests us. Oh, yes, this is a test. He just wants to see what we'll do. But then there's always that one. There's that one brother or sister in a group that's in denial. No, no, not, no, not my Lord. No, they're not taking my Lord. Not on, not on my watch. No. Not, uh, what? Huh? No. My Lord is not suffering and dying, dying at the hands of anybody. And if I were a betting man, I would put my money on that person being Peter. Yes, the Peter who was the first to have a concealed carry, had the knife, chopped his ear. That's the Peter. That's who we've come to know. Jesus, feeling and sensing the angst and frustration and melancholy weighing on his friends, goes over and taps Peter, James, and John on the shoulder and Come here. Let's take a walk. Let's go talk to my Father in heaven about this. Help me preach. What is true of the disciples is true of you and me. You know what it's like when expectations aren't reality. You, you too quickly become frustrated and angry when, when the pregnancy turns into a miscarriage. Words like anger and sadness and shame do not come close to capturing the emptiness you feel bodily and in your soul. Day after day, you wear it like a sweater. When happily ever after becomes, I want a divorce. And, and, and then quickly your mind says, well, what well, was God ever in it to begin with? These are the implications. These are the implications of living in a fallen world, friends. These are the pains all of us have to endure at some point in life because something really is amiss about the world. Something really is wrong with this place that we live in. Life is hard, y'all. And everything that has transpired over the last two years has only amplified the notion But here's what I've come to find out as of late. That, that God has called some of you into places you did not want to go. 
You have been told things you did not want to hear. Your, your situation in life is not what it used to be, but God has you in a place where you can see things from a different perspective. He has withheld things from you so that you could trust him more. He has entrusted some of you with things that you thought you weren't ready for. And friends, this is why, this is why you need mountains in your life. This is why you need time and space where you can simply be with Jesus and commune with the Father. Space where he can walk with you and talk with you and guide you by the hand. Place where you can get on your knees and behind closed doors is sometimes the only answer in life. It's prayer that can take you from the valley to the mountain. It's prayer that changes your posture towards what's in front of you. It gives you the power and perseverance to keep going. And, and then it says to your circumstance, God really is in control of my life. See, when you pray, when you pray, God will do more in you and through you so that whatever is going on around you won't be the end of you. I'll say it again. Let me, let me, let me just say it one more time. When you pray, God will do more in you and through you so that when things are happening around you, it won't be the end of you. That's what prayer does. When you talk to God, you become different. Oh, how do I know this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here it is, verse 29. And as he, Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothes became dazzling white. See, the disciples were not the only ones who had been told unnerving words. See, it was God in Christ who had came down from the extraterrestrial, down to the terrestrial with one purpose in mind, to die. Oh, yeah. Even Jesus needed to be prepared for what laid before him. Jesus knows firsthand what it feels like to be gripped with anxiety, to struggle with grief. He knows what it's like to be given a task that's unbearable. But no, see, see, none of that stops him from stepping into the presence of God through prayer and in a blink, glory, glory, glory. Jesus is standing in all his glory. The Bible says the appearance of his face was altered and, and I like the way they used to say in the church at home, the King James Version, that old Bible. His, his, his the fashion of his face was altered. No, oh, that's a good word. That's a good word, friends. Matthew says his clothes became like lightning. Mark recounts that, he, that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. In other words, when Jesus reveals his true self, it is unrecognizable. It is altogether different, incomprehensible 
too much for human language to capture or, or illustrate. This is the idea that Luke attempts to pin down when using that Greek word heteros. It is where we get our English word different or other. Jesus, Jesus' appearance on the mountain is distinctly different from what, we look, from what he looked like before he got up there. Scholars, scholars have spent much, spent much ink and, and wasted much paper trying to decipher and theologize this very moment in Jesus' life. And yet there, there still is no definitive answer. We really can't know or come to some conclusion as to what's going on, why he would do such a thing. But that's missing the point. To ask why and what is happening is not the point of the text. Trying to logically or systematically break down this encounter is simply wasted energy. The only appropriate response to something such as this is silence. All stillness. You know, I married the prettiest girl in the whole wide world. I did. Now, you, you don't have to agree with me. It really doesn't matter, because I got the mic right now. <laughs> so on our wedding day, it was special for many different reasons. Friends and family all in one place, good food, good drink, laughter, tears, dancing, all, all the things. But, but then there was one moment during that day there was one moment during the service where the doors to the sanctuary began to open and every man, woman, and child stood up on their feet. And then a, a silence, a, a hush went over the room and every head turned and every eye was fixed on the bride walking down the aisle. Not a word to be said, beauty was on full display. And the only thing I could do as she floated down the altar in those very moments, I was silent. I was in awe. I was captivated. I was swept up. Friends, I think what the gospel writers are trying to convey, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and they all have recorded this very same story in each gospel, and so that you and I could catch a glimpse of glory. No, you weren't there in person, but the glory that they saw back then is the same glory that awaits you in the near future. The same glory that was transfigured on the mountain is the same glory that gives you hope for the here and now. And friends, there are moments, there are seasons in life where you just need the presence of God. You, you, you don't need to talk. You don't need to move. You don't need to act. The pandemic has brought nothing but darkness. Your kids seem to be walking further and further away from the Lord. Your money is starting to look funny. The change in your pocket is acting strange. The debt just keeps growing and growing and growing. You have tried to fix the situation. You have tried to cover it up. You have tried to ignore it. 
But I know, I know I have come here to preach to someone this morning that needs to hear, stop. Stop what you're doing and just sit in the presence of the Lord. Gaze upon his face. Fix your eyes upon Jesus in his glory. You've been in the dark, and now the light is calling to you. Luke pans the camera off of Jesus now and, and, and sets his focus on Peter and the other disciples. The Bible tells us that Peter, James, and John were heavy or, or overcome with sleep. Then they were awoken by Jesus' transfiguration. Can you see Peter? Rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, trying to, to wake up and see all the commotion. He's squinting. He, it, it's so bright. He, he, he slaps his face. He rubs his eyes some more because he really, it, 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 is that what I see? What, what am I seeing? I've never seen such a thing before. His eyes begin to adjust, and he, and, and he finally sees the most beautiful thing he's ever seen in his life. He isn't quite sure, but he, but he keeps on looking. And then, bam, he makes it out. It's, it's Jesus, or, or what used to be Jesus, maybe, and two other men standing beside him. And what was supposed to be another day in the neighborhood had just become a night that these disciples would live with forever. Peter, in typical fashion, oh, bless Peter's heart, speaks up trying to savor this moment as long as possible. The Bible says, Peter says, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Peter didn't know what he was saying. He had no idea what he was saying. He just wanted all that glory for himself. See, Peter was Jewish. And from time to time, excuse me, from the time he came out of the womb, he went to every Sunday school class. He went to every VBS. He was in every prayer meeting. Anytime the doors of the synagogue was open, young Peter was there in the pew, ready. That's what Jews did. And now, standing before him, is every Sunday school lesson in HD. Moses, Jesus, and Elijah. See, some Jews thought that John the Baptist was supposed to be the promised one. Others thought that Elijah, that great Old Testament prophet who, would never, who never saw death but was taken up in a chariot of smoke into heaven, was supposed to be the promised one of Israel. Moses and Elijah were just representatives of what God had done in the past and what he was about to do forever in the future. Oh, yeah, I know I'm right about it. I know. Moses, come help me preach my sermon. Come down to the altar and tell the people of the power of God. See, it was way back in Egypt where there was a man named Pharaoh. He had put chains on the people of God. He had weighed them down with unbearable work. But then the Israelites began to cry out with deep groanings. And it was way up there that Yahweh had remembered his folk. He had remembered the promise of his people. 
So he raises Moses up from obscurity. And he tells Moses to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. It was God who downs Pharaoh and his army. It was God who liberates the Israelites from under Pharaoh's thumb. It was God who raised the seas like a curtain so his people could walk free. Elijah, we need your help. Who do you think it was that kept the widow of, uh, kept the widow of Zarephath alive during a famine? Who raised her child from the dead? Just ask the prophets of Baal what happens to those who test God's people. No, it wasn't Elijah who pulled fire from heaven. No, it was God who sent down fire from heaven. The Bible says, the Bible says in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Maybe you're here and you have begun to doubt what God has really done for you. Maybe life has been so dark that you have forgotten about who God really is. Maybe it slipped your mind of who Jesus really is. In the beginning, the earth was without form and with void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then, and then God said, let there be light. I'm going somewhere, just stick with me. I know I may be preaching to myself, but, but I've got to wonder, where could all that light come from to light the whole earth? Who in the world could possess enough radiance to light this whole place? Maybe you'll catch it on your way out. I've got to get back to my seat, but just give me a moment, Justin. I'm about to close my sermon. Verse 35, and the voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You know what set Jesus apart from Moses and Elijah? You know why your money can't wash away your greatest blunders? Why education can't hide your flaws? Why you can't ever do good enough to, feel, to ever feel whole again? None of that was and is capable of dying for you. See, this mountain wasn't the only thing that Jesus climbed in his life. It was just a few weeks later that he would climb a tree, a tree shaped in the form of a cross. And it was up there where he bled and suffered on your behalf. It was up there where he bore what you could not. It was up there where he gave his last breath so you could have a breath in eternity. But then he died. I said he died and to death died with nails in his hands and nails in his feet and a crown of thorns on his head. Then they laid him in a borrowed tomb. It was borrowed because three long days later it was up for sale again. I don't know else how to preach it. My soul is happy. But then he got up. Yes, God in the flesh got up with all power and all honor and all glory in his hands. And to be declared as the chosen one doesn't just mean he came to save, but it also meant that he came to suffer and die and live again. That's the glory of God, friends. That's the hope that Jesus offers you today 
and tomorrow and the rest of your life. Glory, glory, glory. There he is in all his glory. Behold his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Glory, glory, glory. We praise your name, Father. <clears throat> we thank you for your goodness. Will we just sit and bask and soak up the goodness and the glory of your Son? Amen.